Hey, it's your dungeon master friend, Punk Rock Jenny, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 35 begins with the PCs taking bloody vengeance against Janelle for betraying them to the Weeping Eye. While her son easily is spared, Cole's death is avenged, and Janelle pays for her breach of trust with her life. Unable to return to their own apartments, the companions must stay with Jace's family in a room above their renewed ironmonger's business. Jace's younger brother runs the place now, in addition to taking care of their aged and infirm parents. The episode ends with the Yellowfly waking in the middle of the night to find Shawnee staring out the window of their room, unable to sleep. The two friends talk briefly about their plans, Fly mentions that Jace will speak with his boss the next day, who will be able to get word of their survival to Lord Rabbit. Shawnee doesn't want to talk business, so the two just sit in silence together and watch the snowfall. Chapter 36 Part 1 Day 113 Afternoon Party status Jace 26 of 26 hit points. A sliding panel set at eye level opened in the thick door. Password, came a voice from the other side. For the moon never beams, said Jace. The panel snapped shut and a jingle of keys could be heard. Presently, the door opened and a man with an ugly scar on his forehead let him in out of the cold. Thanks, Marug. Wait here. Marug was not employed for his looks, nor for his manners. He walked away, leaving Jace to wait by the door. The young rogue had no sooner hung his cloak on the nearby peg when he heard the familiar voice of his boss. Jace, it brightens my eyes to see you. But I'm so sorry about everything that has happened. Tell me I heard it wrong. You can't be the only one who's made it back. From our group, yes. Most of Rabbit's group survived. Not all. They saved my life, if I'm honest. Come and join me in the sitting room. They entered a room with wood panel walls and a thick rug on the floor. There were no windows here, but the fireplace kept it warm and bright. Marrick says you use the old passphrase. I wasn't aware there was a new one. You weren't here. They changed it when the city went into lockdown. Nudge Pickens had something of a moon face, with big eyes covered by perpetually half-closed, heavy eyelids that gave him the appearance of always being half-asleep or half-drunk. He was anything but. Nudge was a sharp-witted individual who noticed everything. 
The two men spent a half hour talking over the events of the past few days. Nudge asked a lot of questions about the Lord Rabbit's gang, especially Yellowfly. When the conversation came to Fia, Danelon, and the others who fell in the Holloway attack, he grew appropriately somber. They were his friends, too, after all. Eventually, as their conversation was about to conclude, Nudge taught Chase the church's new passphrase and bid him farewell. Are you sure there's no news of this Suro the Mad? asked Chase, repeating his chief concern. None at all, replied Nudge, looking down at his sleeve and picking at an invisible loose thread. And I would have heard about it. These winks are killing each other in the streets lately. No, no, you're in no danger, my good friend. Go back, take a rest, and wait for me to send word in a few days' time. Best to lay low right now and stay out of trouble. Marik will see you out. Jace thanked his boss and the two men embraced warmly before he took his leave, escorted outside by the surly Marug, who'd been standing sentry, as he always did, in the next room. When the visitor had left and Marug returned to attend his employer, Nudge surprisingly dismissed him for the day. I've no more appointments, Marug. And you've earned a little free time. The scarred fighter protested at first, but Nudge waved him off, saying he wished to be truly alone to mourn the loss of Fia, Danelon, and the others. Maru gave him a strange look before shrugging and taking his leave. Only after he had sat alone for a few minutes did he call out, You can come in. There's only me now. The door to Nudge's private study opened, and Suro the Mad entered, wearing a half-smile. The wizard was dressed in a voluminous robe of black, trimmed with a crimson thread that matched the color of his wild hair. His pale blue eyes were as chips of ice. You did well. Then release my daughter, as we agreed. I will. And you have not harmed her? Not as of yet, though if you have played me false. Suro had taken Nudge's daughter as a hostage two days earlier after receiving word through his spies that the survivors of the Holloway ambush had returned to Silmoral. He had told Nudge to arrange a meeting at a time where he might be there to overhear their conversation. If Nudge failed to do this, Suro threatened to send his daughter to a woman he knew about in Mirpool, who, as he put it, collected children. There is one last thing. Tell me where this Jace lives, then your daughter shall be returned to you. Nudge Pickens wanted to lunge at this man and tear him to pieces with his bare hands. Instead, in a voice thick with self-loathing, he told him everything he wanted to know. The spider spins its silky thread, weaving beauty, fear, and dread. They were huddled in the warmth of one of the Warren's many one-oven bakeries, at this bakery, and only on certain rare days like this one, the baker would make biscuits instead of bread, and children from the neighborhood would come to munch them and watch local performers while their parents sipped at cups of cider. Today's performance was a puppet show, or more accurately, a marionette show. The puppeteer pulled a few strings and made his dolls move about in the little box stage as the onlookers clapped and giggled. There were two marionettes, the performer called them poppets, on the little stage right now. One was meant to be a king. It wore a paper crown, painted yellow, and long green robes. By the robe's color, and by a little toy-sized axe leaning against the diminutive throne, even the children knew this was King Saega, one of the kings of old. The other poppet was a huge black spider, almost as large as the king. It was a monster. Presently, it descended from the stage ceiling by its own strings, which were meant to represent spider silk. 
The king puppet was played in such a way that the onlookers could tell he did not perceive the danger over his head. One of the children in the audience began to cry. The puppeteer paid her no heed and continued with his rhyme. Giant spider, legs so long, crawly, creepy, ugly, strong. Eight eyes glowed as it dropped through air. The king below was unaware. Now the spider poppet, positioned right over King Saeg's head, started to race down its web, and the crowd, as one, leaned forward. The spider advanced with venomous breath, suspended above like an angel of death. The audience gasped as the monster fell right on top of the king. There was a flurry of puppet string, and when it was over, the king was tied up in his own. Once again, the performer had cleverly used the marionette's threads as a prop. If the spider's fangs should pierce his vein, the king would lose his life in pain. The puppeteer pulled on his strings to make the giant spider rear back. It was clear that this moment was only there to increase the tension and to allow for the next few lines of poetry. Sadal says, we sow, we reap, and now the king would know the sleep, the sleep of death that he did feed his enemies with poisoned mead. The puppet spider lunged at the puppet king. Then, here, at the climactic moment, a black cloth curtain dropped down over the front of the stage. Seconds later, the king popped up in front of it as though rising from a reclining position. The spider was gone. Sadal had sent him such a scare, a black and ugly nightmare. But from that day, Saega vowed, to be a righteous man and said aloud, I have become a king through sin, but let my pious life begin. To great Sadal, as he has willed, I shall a holy temple build. The play was a colorful reimagining of Camertine's history. Specifically, it was the first half of the reign of King Saega, also known as Saega of the Axe, the fifth king of Camertine. The chronicles told that he won his crown by poisoning his competitor's mead with a sleeping drug before a trial by combat to decide who should rule. Later in his life, the king was said to have found religion after his children were taken by the so-called sleeping plague, and the king believed it had happened as cosmic retribution for his past sinful actions. He was known to have started the construction of the Great Cathedral that eventually was repurposed to the deity Vesaluna. The last line of the poem, to great Sadal, as he has willed, I shall a holy temple build, actually referred to that place, not the Church of the Sacred Flame. That last line of poetry would normally have been followed by the black curtain lifting and a bow from both the puppet king and even the spider. The performer knew that this would always make the crying children dry their cheeks and bring a laugh or a smile. But today, the performance did not receive any applause at all. For the moment after the performer announced the final line, his little wooden box stage was kicked to splinters by the iron-shod boot of a city guard. What's this then? Sedition? The puppeteer was a man barely in his thirties. He had shoulder-length blonde hair that he wore in a ponytail to keep it out of his face while he worked. He had a large strawberry-colored birthmark on his left cheek that would have made him instantly recognizable. Yes, instantly recognizable even hanging upside down, as he was now, with his throat slit and his tongue bulging out of his mouth. Jace saw him as he walked back from Nudge Pickens' place in the cobbles. This man, and the three others dangling beside him, must have been arrested, charged, and executed that morning. They now hung from the arch spanning the entrance to the High Market District. The hanging corpses hadn't been there on his way to Nudge's place. 
although Jace did not recognize the puppeteer, ironically now hanging by the ankles from a rope himself. He did recognize the ugly pockmarked face and scraggly beard of one of the men suspended next to him, hanging like so many fish on a line. It was one of the two guards Yellowfly had bribed to get them into the city the day before. The city had been bad lately. Clearly, it was getting even worse. Jace hurried along. There was no time to tarry. He had much to tell the others. Jace has known Nudge for a long, long time. Might he read some kind of emotional distress on his boss's face? Hmm. The way I imagine Nudge, I actually think he'd be a good actor. Maybe the better question is, do they have some kind of secret code in place? And if so, would Nudge have risked his daughter's life to tip Jace off? The rolls on the mythic action and subject tables indicated the result, lie about danger, remember? So I think that implies the intent to lie. Still, we can make it interesting and ask the dice what has transpired. A simple morale check with a penalty will work here. Let's give Nudge a morale of 9, but apply a minus 2 penalty for Shiro having his daughter hostage, and an additional minus 1 penalty to respect the spirit of the previous mythic roll. That means I need to roll a 6 or below on 2d6. Ready? Here's the roll. been nigh about 20 years since them cool young fool done broke magic and the world ain't been right since monster effrayant from them other worlds running round terrorize and down in the bayou in that there gris gris water there's some kind of evil set on sort of the magnifique so beware my friends Go carefully. Attention, mes amis. Allez-y, prodémon. Else that murky water gonna lead you to the grave. So come with us as we go on another fool's quest. Oh, the trouble. Chapter 36. Part 2. Day 113, early evening, party status, Jace, 26 out of 26 hit points, Yellowfly, 24 of 26, Shanae, 16 of 19, Catsbane, 12 of 12, spells available, Catsbane has memorized magic missile, read languages, mirror image, and invisibility. The snake throws her enameled skin. No answer came. The snake throws her enameled skin. Still no answer. Break it open. Yes, Captain. A dozen guards swarmed into the smithy, fanning out to each corner and checking behind crates and furniture. The new captain of the watch strode in after them. Look upstairs. His men obeyed, tromping up the narrow staircase with swords and spears in hand. A few minutes later, one of them appeared at the top of the stairs and stated what the captain had already guessed. It's empty. Nobody here at all. Look for any indication of where they might have gone. Then destroy everything. Every chair, every shelf, every bottle, every garment. Broken, smashed, and torn. Yes, Captain Crow. 
Krell pinched his lower lip between thumb and forefinger as he thought. Either he'd been deceived by the wizard, or the wizard had been deceived by his informer. Both cases were unacceptable. He did not like to have his time wasted, and he did not enjoy looking the fool in front of his men. Someone was going to pay for this. That 2d6 roll for Nudge's morale check earlier in the episode? I got a 4. That was a surprise, to be honest, and it meant he overcame his fear and tipped off Jace about the imminent danger. Naturally, to communicate this warning, he used Thieves' Cant. The new passphrase he gave Jace was not in code. That would have been too risky. Someone as wily as Suro could have already thought to verify it elsewhere in order to catch just such a deception. It was when Nudge said, You're in no danger, my good friend. That's when Jace knew something was wrong. The phrase, my good friend, is a code the two men have had in place for years. It means, whatever is being said, the opposite is true. So when Nudge says, Go back, take a rest, and wait for me to send word in a few days' time. Jace understood it as a warning to not go back, to be ready for trouble, and finally, to expect not to hear from Nudge for a while. Despite this caveat, he wasn't about to abandon his new companions or leave his family open to danger, so he rushed back home to get everyone out of harm's way. The snake throws her enameled skin. Weeds to wrap a fairy in. The door to the Dunwich Cidery Company opened a crack, and a young, unsmiling face appeared behind it. You shouldn't be here. I know. We've nowhere else to go. You bring danger to my home with every visit. This time I'm bringing gold, too. Here. Yellowfly put fifty gold coins into the girl's small hand, and after a moment's hesitation, Hetty Dunwich let them in. One day only. That's all we need, and I will not ask again. This is against my better judgment, Fly. It was, but Henny's family needed the money. Prospects for their cider business were not good, what with the city watch shutting down small gatherings. It didn't take an oracle to know that very likely, in the near future, festivals and other large public gatherings would be banned as well. Yellowfly led the others into the sweet-smelling cidery proper, closing the door behind them with a quick glance outside to make sure they had not been followed. Once he was satisfied of their safety, they made space among the presses and crates. Hetty, if you have any food, we didn't have a chance to... Uh... Hetty sniffed, but headed through a side door into the adjoining little house that shared a wall with the cidery. Soon she returned with a bowl of biscuits, nuts, and hard cheese. There's apples, too, she muttered. And fly. Well, we'll be gone by tomorrow afternoon. That's a promise. I wish I could offer you more, but... Well, good night. Night was yet a few hours away, but there was nothing to do, and nowhere to go, so Yellowfly appointed a watch, with Shawnee going first, then Catsbane, followed by Jace, and lastly himself. When the order was settled, everyone found a scrap of floor and tended to their own business, or tried to sleep. That evening and the following night were long. The cidery floor was drafty, and it was hard to get comfortable, but they'd all experienced worse. In the morning, they awoke feeling refreshed and grateful that no one had discovered their new hiding place. Jace said a silent thank you to Nudge for the tip-off. His parents and brother had been sent to stay with friends for a few days, but he worried for his employer. When the ironmonger's shop was found empty, Nudge would be in serious danger. Hopefully, the other man had gotten away safely, too. Yellowfly left them in the morning to visit the Lord Rabbit. He didn't come back until afternoon. Get your things, he said in his gruff manner. I'll explain everything on the way. He reached down and selected a red apple from a crate and stuck it in his pocket. Where are we going? asked Jace, 
perhaps to purge our sins. Chapter 36 Part 3 Day 114 Afternoon the swamps of Mirpool were even more dismal and somber in the winter when nothing stirred, and the only sound was the occasional cracking of ice as the ground below changed temperature minutely from hour to hour. A certain willow grew in the middle of the bog. It was an enormous tree with a heavy mop of tendrilous branches that flopped over so completely that the tips had become trapped in the ice below. An awful creature, a harpy, lived in this tree and kept watch over the little cabin at its base. Inside this lonely dwelling, the night mother was giving some instructions to her protege. The crone moved stiffly in the winter months and wheezed with every breath from the simple exertions of remaining upright. She'd grown weaker lately, having to drain one of her prized captives to create and sustain the harpy. Night mother grunted as she hobbled across the small room and then sat in the chair opposite Romola. I have with me a sawyer's thumb. Use it well when time do come. She passed a little bag across the table. It was soft and supple, made of rat pelt. Romola opened it and regarded the little jumble of small bones inside. She thanked her mentor and tucked the charm away. In that moment, a weird blue-eyed raven alighted on the edge of the cabin's single window, which, lacking shutters, was ever open. It caught at Night Mother, then strutted across the narrow perch and cawed twice again. Another number dead. Now fly away, my child. Keep watch upon our enemies, and when they near, report. The bird seemed to actually nod, or possibly bow, before it spread its wings and flapped off. He was the sweetest boy, remember? Romola, who sat opposite her on a wooden chair, was peeling a pear with a short-bladed knife. The younger woman smiled and nodded. She had forgotten his name, but her teacher spoke the truth. The raven had once been a little boy, with the kindest disposition and brightest blue eyes that looked like the sky in summer. Having peeled her fruit, she began to cut it into little slices, pulling the blade towards her thumb with care. Night Mother reached a hand, withered and dark, across the table and touched Romola's, which was pale and plump by comparison. The younger woman stopped her cutting and looked up. More will come, the spirits tell, and one will be a man of faith. Romola nodded in understanding. Beware of him, my child. Romola promised that she would. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help out, there are a bunch of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show. I'd like to take a moment now to read one of your kind reviews. This one was posted on the Podcast Addict app by Kruke Signati. Kruke Signati writes... I stumbled upon this podcast rolling 20 in my internet crawl, and I've been following ever since. What I enjoy most is the feeling of real game and the sound engineering. I also like how the characters have developed and the story unfolds. Great work, DM. I'm really looking forward to the next episode. Greetings from Italy. Thanks so much, Kruke Signati. I'm so happy the game part of this show comes through. 
I'm always so pleased to hear from listeners all over the world, and another listener from Italy is very exciting. Keep rolling that 20 with podcasts. You never know what else you might stumble upon. At this point, I'd like to take a moment to thank my excellent cast, and it's a big cast today, maybe even my biggest. Well, with five actors, it's up there. Kevin Berenger is back in the role of Jace. Find Kevin online at kbearcreation.com. Other returning actors include Blythe of the incredibly good Grognard Files podcast, playing Soro the Mad, and Simon J. Williams bringing back Cole's brother, Krell. Uh-oh, you knew we were going to see Krell again, didn't you? By the way, Simon has a show called Legend of the Bones that is not to be missed. I have a couple of newcomers to the show to introduce, too. Taking over the role of Hedy Dunwich, I'd like to welcome Samantha of the Dungeons & Dragons UK podcast. And finally, giving voice to Nudge Pickens, I'm happy to introduce Danilo from the Thinking Critically Discussion podcast. Find Danilo at thinkingcritically.co.uk or at thinkcritdnd on Twitter. Welcome Samantha and Danilo, and thanks very much to you, Kevin, Blythe, and Simon. Extra special thanks go out to Kyle in this episode for the use of his song, No Way Out, that you can hear when Captain Krell raids the Ironmonger's shop. I've used Kyle's music a few times in the past as well. If you remember the scene where Jace's crew was ambushed in the Holloway and had to fight their way out, that was a Kyle composition. It's very good stuff, and I'd encourage everyone to check him out on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. There'll be a link in the show notes, too, that you can find on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, along with a bunch of other stuff. If listeners want to get in touch with me, I'm at ManticoreTale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. You ever wanted to play Shadowrun? You know, the cyberpunk tabletop game where man meets magic and machine. It's too hard though, right? Too crunchy? Too clunky? It's a lot of math. Wrong! Pink Fohawk is a Shadowrun 2nd Edition actual play podcast, played by the rules, but fast and loose, with all the 80s cyberpunk edginess you know and love, where the hair is big and the explosions are bigger. Follow the story of two rad Shadowrunners, making a name for themselves in the mean streets of 2053 Seattle. Tina Bonemeal, nine and a half feet of pure troll muscle, surveillance expert, and aspiring actress. John Anderson, former company man, with a resume shrouded in mystery and a black belt Nikito. Check out Pink Fohawk Podcast, available everywhere you listen to podcasts.